Heavenly Father, what an important prayer that is, that you deliver us from the evil one who is very active in this world to take captive our minds and our hearts and to pull them away from you, to, to cause us to go into slavery to all kinds of things that would appear to be freedom. Father, we trust that all power and glory are yours, and so we come with great confidence before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing to uh, look at this series on prayer, and just by way of recap, uh, what we've talked about so far as we uh, coordinate our series of prayer with our Awakened West Houston, we are in the midst of praying alongside other churches in the city of Katy and West Houston for our city as a whole. Uh, for these 30 days, we've been praying, hopefully uh, that's been going well for you, uh, praying specifically for your neighbors that live around your home. Uh, so your neighbor to the right and the left, across the street and catty corner and such and behind you, uh, and going through this 30-day devotional to pray something unique and specific to them each day. And hopefully as a result of that, that our hearts will, will be more inclined to engage with our neighbors, those same neighbors you've been praying for as you look for opportunities to, to bless them, uh, to listen to them, engage them in conversation, perhaps even have them over for dinner or eat together and get to know them more. And as you're listening to them, hopefully hearing ways in which you can serve them as they reveal those things to you, and then winning the opportunity to share your own story, to share your own faith, share your own message about how the Lord has, has made a difference in your life and how He might make a difference in theirs. So that's our focus on these 30 days on prayer. And so far we've talked about what does it look like to pray? And uh, the first question was, well, why pray at all? And the answer that was considered was, well, because prayer works. Pretty simple. We pray because prayer works. It may not always work the way we expect it to, but we can be greatly confident there are things that in this world that can be accomplished in absolutely no other way than prayer because prayer is effective, that prayer works. And then we consider the idea that you can pray uh, just for prayer's sake, that prayer itself brings you into the presence of God, which is an ultimate end, that prayer, time with the Lord in prayer is its own reward. We don't just have to pray, in, or, in other words, in order to get something or to see that it's working for some other purpose or some other end. It's not as though God becomes a means to an end, that He is the ultimate end, and He is the one to whom we can go and spend time in prayer with because He is a right reward. That time is a great reward. And as we come into the presence of God, we were reminded to come as a child, to come without pretense, uh, completely bearing our souls before the Lord because we don't know any better. Child, don't, children don't know any better than to reveal their hurts, their pains, and everything they're going through before the Lord, before their parents, that is. Uh, you know, as parents, exactly what's going on in the heart and mind of your child when they are really little. Because they haven't learned yet the importance of, of masking who they are, of developing that Instagram self. They come with no pretense. And we are encouraged to come as a child before the Lord without pretense. And to come without fear. With no fear in whatever it is that we might want to bring before Him. And then lastly, we were reminded to come with great expectations. Great expectations. Because that is how a child comes to a parent. He comes to a parent and is befuddled if his parent doesn't respond. Parents are expected to respond to the requests of their children, even if it's not in the affirmative. 
There is this expectation that a child has. It doesn't even cross the child's mind that the parent would not respond. That's why he goes. So hopefully you're encouraged in prayer so far. We're taking another look this morning about a little bit different approach in that uh, the attitude that we have with regard to prayer, and it's related to humility. And this is a topical series, so I did a little bait and switch on you. I switched the psalm, or actually the text that we're going to look at instead of the one that's in your bulletin. We're not going to look at Psalm 34, although that would probably work as well. Instead, we're going to look at Psalm 131. We're also going to look at a passage from Jeremiah chapter 9 and a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, in Jeremiah, we're going to look at 9, 23 through 24. And in 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. So would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Psalm 31. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even though things, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are, Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is God's Word. So please have a seat. Well, you know, at the heart of prayer is a conversation, a conversation that you are engaging in with the Lord. And so with that in mind, I want you to think a little bit about the kinds of conversations that you have with other people, uh, especially when you get in a group. So if you get in a group, for example, and you're not necessarily in a group that is uh, aimed at some business purpose, in other words, the whole purpose is to get to know each other, what typically happens? Someone will share a story because it's entertaining, because it's engaging, because it's funny, or it's shocking. And as you listen to that, you hear pieces of that, and it reminds you of a story that you can share that may be just a little bit more shocking or a little bit more funny, right? And then someone else carries with that theme. So you see in these conversations go on, these themes begin to develop. And in some ways, you don't want to be the first one to share the story because everyone has one-upped you by the end of that theme until it runs out and someone has to change to a different theme. And they'll find some connected aspect of that story to jump to another one because they couldn't think of one that would one-up that one. So we jump over here. And, and you know what that's like. And, and they're fun. Those are engaging conversations. And we learn 
some entertaining things. We, we do get a slight window into people a little bit, perhaps, when we do that. Uh, we like having fun sharing those things. But one thing that we find ourselves doing, or perhaps you can relate with this, when you're listening to someone's story, the moment it reminds you of one of your own and along the same themes, your mind starts to wander. Because you have to develop that story <laughs> in a way that you can share it. You've got to remember all those details. You've got to remember how you can say it. And then you've got to be ready for in the right moment you can jump in and share your story. Otherwise, someone's going to beat you to the punch. So there is this, in conversations that we're used to having, we're used to sort of listening to people. But more than anything, what we want is as soon as they trigger a theme that's okay to talk about, and I can think of a story that, that I have to share, I want people to listen because I want them somehow to enter into my story with me. That's what I'm hoping for. And, and as a result, everybody's kind of wanting that same thing. And, it, and what happens is nobody really enters into those stories with each other fully. There are these missed opportunities. It's as though when you start to tell that story, you are opening a window or opening a door, if you want to think of it, and inviting people to come in. And when other people are having that conversation, they're inviting you to come in. And we will glance, we'll glance in the door because that's how we know what the story is all about. But we don't often go in. We glance in, see what's there, and we move on and we open our own door, hoping that people will come in to that one. And so we miss really getting to know what others are opening the door to reveal about themselves. Now, why do we do this? I think we do this because at the heart of who we are, we are self-centered people. We are self-centered people, and there is something in ourself that needs to be fed. We need somehow to find validation. We need somehow to get a sense that we are worth something, that we are valuable, that someone will see us and who we are revealing ourselves to be, and they will give some measure of affirmation, some approval. Something that tells us, yeah, we're valuable. We're of great worth. You hear that? Okay. Not just me. My ears aren't just ringing. Okay. So we have this same... I think we bring this in, by the way, into our conversations with the Lord when we think about prayer. We have opportunity to engage with the Lord and really get to know the heart of God. And as you come into prayer with God, you think about the way your prayers tend to be shaped. You go to the Lord with very specific requests, with a very specific agenda of things you want to bring up before the Lord. And, and that's not a bad thing. Of course, we're encouraged to do that. We're encouraged to bring our needs before the Lord. I mean, He tells us to, to ask. You, know, you, have, you don't have because you don't ask. So He wants us to bring those things. But that shouldn't ever be the end of the conversation. The conversation is a two-way street. There is opportunity for us when we come into the presence of the Lord to also enter His story. Because what we're wanting the whole time in that kind of conversation is we want God to enter into our story the same way we want other people to enter our story so that He will validate us based on our story, based on what He finds inside here my heart and my mind. And the, the problem with that is, inside you and your heart and your mind, 
you might find things a little bit lacking <laughs> to validate and worth. But that doesn't mean you can't find validation and worth in your conversations with the Lord. You see, you don't find them when you ask God to enter your story. You find them because you yourself have entered into His story. And when you enter into the story of God, you find a story that uncovers and reveals your own worth, your own validation, your value. So we have to learn to pray before the Lord, not in a boastful manner that says, look at me, I want you to validate me by looking into my life. Instead, we come humbly, ready and eager to look into God's story in order to find the worth and validation that we're longing to find. So that's kind of the gist of where we're going. So I want to look a little bit about this idea of boasting, this idea of humility, and this idea of the self. Uh, because we have this, this view of ourselves that is kind of problematic. It drives us to do a lot of things. Uh, because we're constantly trying to form an image of ourself, again, that is worth something, that is valuable. So I want to talk just briefly about this whole idea of self-image. And what is it? It's the way, of course, we see ourselves and have value, place value upon ourselves in the world. Before coming here, I was working um, in this office in Oklahoma, and my boss, he was, a, he was a funny guy. He was a little on the short side. He was a little bit overweight. But in his office, he, would, he had, he had a, a, a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, you know, doing his pose. And he pasted his head on the top. And he'd always joke, he said, this is how I see myself. <laughs> this is his self-image. I, I think, you know, that's a funny picture, but I think, I think that's what we are doing all the time, is we are presenting this image of ourselves to the world that we think the world will value, that we think the world will affirm, that will give us a sense of worth. Because if you'll notice, what we're doing is we're deriving a sense of worth through the, worth, through the eyes and the lens and the views of the people that, to whom we engage with. It is interesting in this, in this Sunday school class that so we're going through this book, Strange New World, he talks about that as well. We're looking at a chapter in that book, Strange New World, uh, this morning to say how important it is that, we've, that we have a place to belong because we're deriving a sense of who we are from the people that we belong with because they put a value on certain, perhaps, uh, qualities of life, certain characteristics, certain um, things about you. And so we tend to conform ourselves to those things that they value so that we ourselves will find value and worth through their eyes, because that's how we begin to see ourselves. And this is not unique to our day and age. It's not unique to our culture. I mean, this is true. This is human nature. This is true everywhere. It was true in history. So, if you want to go back and consider what we read in that 1 Corinthians passage in chapter 1, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, why does he say that? Well, the reference to being wise, the reference to being powerful, the reference to noble birth, these are measures, these were these were aspects of their culture that were considered valuable. And so if you wanted to be able to boast of something, you wanted to boast of your 
wisdom. You wanted to boast of your wealth or of your power because you knew the people in that day around you valued those things. And if you could present those things about you to the people around you, then you would assume that you would have value in their eyes. Now, Jeremiah says something very similar. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. So it's, a, it's, it's overlapping, not quite the same, but very similar. His wealth, his might. What was the other one? His wisdom. I mean, those, are, those overlap with today's culture quite a bit, don't you think? I mean, we're shifting. It is interesting to look how our culture is shifting away from those particular set of values to a new set of values, but we're familiar with those values. I mean, wisdom, for example... Let's take wisdom. I mean, this, this congregation is a, this is a smart congregation. You guys are well-educated. i got to prepare a lot to come and speak to you guys. And you know what's interesting? You probably like hearing that. Why? Because it communicates some measure of value. I've just elevated you. I've just given you some worth. Maybe you'll come back. But the, you see that what's happening here is we do this intuitively. We want to be considered wise. Now, some of you, like me, you know, you went to graduate school, you have a lot of education under your belt, and so wisdom is all you have. You know, when you're a pastor, you don't have the other part. You don't have the wealth. And I'm not young anymore. I don't have the, you know, the strength. So it's like all I got left is the wisdom. So if, if you guys don't view me, you know, if I don't, by standing up here preaching to you guys, don't somehow communicate this idea that I'm full of wisdom, then it makes me wonder, am, am I going to have any worth anymore? What happens when my mind starts to fade? You know, I'm in trouble because my value, my worth plummets with it. And that leads us really to the second aspect I wanted to talk about. There is a great problem when you look at yourself and derive your self-image when you're looking through the lens of other people. There's a great problem with that, and you, you get what's going on because, one, people are very fickle, and values shift. I mean, as we've been observing, I mean, you're, you're watching in real time the culture shift its dominant set of values that it embraces and contributes worth to, to a new set. And if, what happens if you don't move fast enough? If you don't move fast enough to embrace the things that the world says you ought to value today, then you're left behind. And you want it, well, while the one person in the old days who had a lot of money was considered valuable, well, in this new set of values, wealth can actually be a negative. Or if you came from a quote-unquote noble family, let's say you came from Europe of nobility, maybe that's in your ancestry and you like that aspect. Well, today, you might be viewed as, instead of one of noble birth, you're viewed as one who has been a source of oppression for people for centuries. So it was once giving you value, and now it's giving you the very opposite. It's stealing value when you look at your life through the lens of others. And it's, it's a problem. I'll give you one illustration If I can find it in here, this is a problem. You don't stick to your notes too close. 
I had a different boss. It's not the same boss before that boss. I had one that was engaging with me, and he had, was giving me an instruction, but he got his, his facts wrong that he was using to build an argument. And I wasn't able to, to do the work because his facts were wrong. Now, the facts themselves were not that big a deal. I pointed out his mistake to him, and uh, guess how that went? It didn't go over very well. It's like, why does this not go over well? I can't do my work unless you get the facts right. But he refused to admit that he'd made any mistake. Even though I presented indisputable proof, (laughs) and I couldn't do the job because he'd gotten his facts wrong, but he simply couldn't acknowledge it because of what it would mean in terms of how he thought others would see him. No longer being an authority. authority. No longer being the one who's right, who can be looked to. You see, even though objectively he was wrong and the best thing to do for the business sake would have been to admit it and move on, he couldn't do that because he was afraid of how other people would see him. And it handcuffs the whole system obviously. The work can't get done. We can't move forward. And the irony of it is, is when other people all see that, they don't see the fact that you held on to your authority. What they see is you've held on to your pride. And you look actually worse (laughs) in their eyes than you would have had you admitted it. I mean, I find this is a fascinating characteristic, how fascinatingly universal this is. I mean, none of us likes to be pointed out we're wrong. But depending on how elevated that particular value is in your sphere is going to determine how devastating that's going to be. I mean, I, I find it interesting. I know we like to characterize like Washington or, or people in, in politics and how, you know, the old adage is you, you never see a politician admit he's wrong. You think, well, why is that? Why well, think the circles that he's running in, you know, values this aspect of it. Either, either he's he can never be wrong, he can always be right, or he finds some way to, to, to spin that information so that it looks like he's right. Because that's the value among this peer group that he's looking at himself through their lens. And it's, it's easier to make, it's easier to see this when someone's doing this that doesn't have perhaps the same, if you want to call it, idol that you do, right? It's easier to see this when you're looking at it objectively from someone else, but it's much harder to see it in yourself. It's harder to see it in yourself. I mean, you think about the fickleness of this, and you think about an athlete. An athlete who's competing to win a prize, let's say a football player, for example. A football player, uh, here's a question, the Super Bowl, was, was that last Sunday? Last Sunday? I think it was, yeah. So you had, you had two teams playing. Do you think that the men on the Chiefs played harder than the men on the Eagles? I mean, I, I, I would, you'd be hard-pressed to say, no, they played differently. I mean, one won and one didn't. But you know who you're going to remember next year? You're going to remember the Chiefs. You might not even remember who they were playing. Can you remember who, who played last year? Well, I don't remember either one, but... Some of you might remember the winner of last year, but you probably don't remember who lost. And, and how does that affect the players? Because a player who wins can be completely elevated. I mean, if you talk to him in his press conference, he is 
on a high. Now, if you happen to go into the locker room of the losing team, what do you see? You see complete dejection. I mean, it's despairing, and you think, was it because one played harder than the other? No, it's one received a claim, and one did not. One received a claim, and one did not. In other words, they, see, they are seeing themselves and their worth through the eyes of other people. And the nation is valuing one team, and they're not valuing the other. And so their whole emotional state is up and down. Now, some of you may not necessarily be athletes, but you are into sports and you have a favorite team. And have you ever noticed, if it's football, for example, on Sunday, how you're emotionally up or down depending on how this team did? That's just crazy how we do this. That we, want, that we want to derive a sense of identity from this team, and we know how the people are looking at that team. So it's a very real aspect of life that we have to, that we have to be concerned about. How are we deriving our sense of worth? Through the lens of other people or from something else? In Jeremiah chapter 9, he translates the word boasting, or we translate, sorry, the word that is translated boasting is the word hallelujah. Now, you're familiar with that word. You've heard that word. You sing hallelujah. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, it's a Hebrew. It means to praise or to glory, to glorify. So when you say hallelujah, yah is the shortened version of Yahweh. So you're saying glorify Yahweh, glorify the Lord or praise the Lord. But the, the word for boast is actually the word hallelujah in its reflexive form which simply means grammatically it's the, it's the turn back on itself form. The word for boast is the, the derivation of glorify me. It's the desire to get glory for me. That's why we boast. I mean, it is interesting when you just look at the etymology of the word that boasting is for the purpose of trying to gain glory for me, to invite people to look at me through a lens where I want to put on display what I think they're going to value so that they will give me glory. Now, how do you treat someone who has a low self-image? How does our culture treat them? Or how do we, how do we help people get over that bad self-image? I, I think one approach has been, for many people, is to say, it, well, it's to, it's to help them shift from one lens to another. So if you're having trouble in this group because they're not valuing you, maybe you need to identify with another group. Or if you don't feel yourself very good at math, perhaps you need to celebrate the fact that you know how to make people laugh and try to look at yourself through the lens of those who are laughing at your jokes, those who are appreciating that skill, those who are giving worth, who are giving glory to you because of that ability. But the problem with that is all you're doing is shifting from one crumbling foundation to another crumbling foundation. Because remember, people are fickle. And was one day in favor is one day out of favor. So we need something different if we're going to have a proper view of ourselves. And of course, what prayer helps us to do this, it helps us learn to see ourselves through the lens of God. And that's what humility versus boasting is all about. Because the opposite of boasting, if we think about it, is humility. Humility is the 
not deriving a sense of glory for myself by presenting these things. It's looking elsewhere, outside of myself, for that which is going to bring me glory. So let's, let's think about that for just a moment. I mean, let's think about little children. Children are a great example, for example. You, you, you see yourselves through the eyes of your parents, that is, as a child, or your friends when you're a little bit older, or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse, or even perhaps the eyes of your children, or your boss or your coworkers, and you tend to be attracted to those people who see you in the best light. Again, highlighting the fickleness of people. I mean, when you can... I don't want to pick on any particular kids here, but I know some of them more than others. But, I mean, it's like things they've shared me, not only about themselves, but about their friends. We see people going through this all the time. They, they, in one setting, they can, be, they can be, see themselves and be so high and lifted up because they're in a group of people who values this particular aspect. And then they get into a different setting, and all of a sudden, their self-image just crumbles. It just crumbles. And all of a sudden, they go from being a person who likes themselves who seems very self-confident, to a person who's just devoid of all of that, simply because of the way those around them see them. And it can be devastating when this happens. I mean, think of a child who loses a parent. If that child was deriving his worth and identity, there's value through the eyes of his parent, and that parent suddenly disappears, suddenly passes away, suddenly gets divorced and leaves, whatever it is, the effects on that child will follow him perhaps the rest of his life. That's how important it is that we see ourselves through the correct lens. What happens, let's talk about spouses for just a minute. Your spouse values you and you derive that and you love that. You love the fact that you are loved. Your spouse makes you feel special, makes you feel of great worth. But what happens when your spouse suddenly sees you do something that you wish you hadn't done. It may not have been that big a deal to someone else watching in the world, but when your estimation you feel goes down in your spouse's eyes, it can be crushing. It can be absolutely devastating. And it carries over into all the other aspects of your life. So, the whole idea is we need a new self-image one based not on the way other people see us, not even on based on the way that we are able to perform. We need to see ourselves, again, as I mentioned, through the eyes of God rather than the eyes of men. Because where does the assignment of worth come from? It doesn't come from man, ultimately. Man has no worth actually to give to another. The place it comes from is the one who made us. It comes from the Creator. He's the only one that has value that He can give or, or create, as it were, or to extend or to define. I mean, if you're the maker of something, you define its value. You define its worth. So, if we look to that, that's where we're going to derive our sense of worth. We have to learn how to see ourselves through the eyes of God. And again, prayer is a tool to help us to do that. 
I mentioned earlier in class, in the Sunday school class this morning, this definition uh, to help us understand the nature of sin, because if we want to think about self-image and sin together, think of it this way. Uh, pastor or philosopher theologian named Soren Kierkegaard wrote this once, sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from Him. And largely we do that through the things we do as we value them through the eyes of others. Paul's answer is found in 1 Corinthians one thirty-one: Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now we have to figure out, well, why would we boast in the Lord? And we're going to look at that. Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, we see the ultimate expression of the worth that we ourselves are actually longing for. This is, uh, this is in, takes place at the baptism of Jesus, and as soon as He's baptized, we hear this voice from heaven, and it says this, it says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you realize that is the phrase that we are longing to hear? Because it's coming from the one source who actually can attribute worth. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is what we're after. I want you to look back at Jeremiah chapter 9. If you happen to have open to that, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, it's really the key here. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me. Well, how do we know God? Well, we know Him through His Son. Why do we know the Son? Well, it was the Son who entered into our story. He entered into our story. He left His home. He left the bosom of the Father. He came to earth. He put on flesh. He walked in our shoes. Not just a mile. He walked His whole life in our shoes, experiencing all the frustrations and despair that we might go through. Even so far as walking in our shoes to the cross and bearing the shame and the guilt that is the reason for our bad self-image and carrying it away. So you want to know your worth and value. In prayer, you enter God's story because God's story is telling you how He entered your story. And He sent His only Son, the one He loved, to die in your place. Now, what does that do for you? What does entering into that story communicate to you? It communicates two very important things. One, it communicates the fact that you've been made clean. You've been removed of the wicked, evil element that would cost the one who can ascribe, who can ascribe worth out of his sight. The one thing that would keep you away, the one thing that would cause him to look poorly on you has been removed completely. And the second thing it says to you is this, how much is Christ worth to God? Because that's the price He paid for you. If you want a dollar figure, as it were, 
on your worth as a person, you look at the person of Jesus Christ and you say, my worth is so great, is so significant that God would willingly sacrifice His Son, and Jesus would willingly accept that and go to the cross, bearing your shame, to communicate to you your worth and your value. So when we think about prayer, you think, what does this have to do with prayer? Prayer, remember, is a conversation with God. And it's our opportunity to enter into God's story, which is the gospel. It's a story that tells us that God entered into our story and ascribes to us worth that we could never, ever achieve in this world. It is the foundation upon, we build, upon which we build our life, and I want you to think about how that affects all your other relationships. Because if you are secure in your value and worth, in your other relationships, you don't have to bend and sway in the wind of where those values happen to be blowing. Because our culture is always moving, it's a current, and it always has us caught up. The question is, do you have the ability to resist that current and where it might be taking you? Can you stand firm and embrace what is actually true as you look at yourself through the eyes of God so that you can endure, perhaps, the shame or the put-downs or the devaluing that other people around you might extend to you? Because they will, no matter what you value or believe, they will. The question is, will that devastate you or not? Is it your foundation? Will it crumble? Will you crumble? Or will you stand? Prayer is our opportunity to go before the Lord, boasting in Him and the fact that we know Him, not boasting in what we ourselves can bring. This is, by the way, highlighted in the prayer, the one prayer that Jesus says, look at this Pharisee who's going saying, I'm glad I am not like that. I'm glad I keep the law. I give my tithe. I do what's right. He's boasting. What is he doing? He's, he's trying to seek self-glory versus the sinner who beats his chest and says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, interestingly enough, which one of those men walked away justified? Which one of those men walked away with worth? The one who did not boast before the Lord. So Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Here's your prayer, your model prayer. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So when you think of your prayer, know that prayer works. Know that prayer brings you into the presence of God, and that in itself is a reward. Go as a child, without pretense, without fear, with great expectation, 
And go humbly, knowing that the only place your glory comes from is from Christ. Because that statement that went to Christ, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, is what you hear when you go to the Lord in prayer and you enter His story. Because those words that were for Christ were extended to you because of Christ entering your story. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have entered our story in such a way that has enabled us to enter your story, to see ourselves through your lens, to see our worth and our value on display on the giving of your own Son on the cross that has made us clean, that has removed from us those things that would devalue us so that we too can hear the words, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen.